0: Welcome to the Birth in podcast. This is a podcast about pregnancy, birth, and early parenting. Yay! G'day, how's it going? I'm Steve from the Prepare Foundation. We are a registered charity that helps first-time dads make an awesome contribution at the birth of their child. This is a podcast where we get blokes talking about their experience to share their wisdom with other men who are about to go through the life-altering change that comes with first-time fatherhood. So let's hear about the transition of parenthood from a dad's perspective. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the next exciting instalment of the Birthing Dads podcast. Today, we are joined by Susie Hodgson, uh, coming to us from Auckland. Is it, Susie?
1: It is, yep, yep, Auckland, New Zealand.
0: Welcome, and uh, we met at the Australian Fatherhood Symposium recently, and I was very interested in Susie's work because she identifies as a fatherhood researcher, and particularly around the transition to fatherhood, which I think is really important to our listeners because it's a high risk time for some guys. And I just really wanted to kind of get you on and, and have a chat about transition to parenthood. And And one of the things I guess we could start with is, is uh, when I started working in this space and doing some research and, and working out that traditionally fathers had, you know, we were the protector, the disciplinarian and the provider, and it was a pretty basic role and you were strong and you were stoic and you sat in the corner and gruffed every now and again. That's obviously, you know, <laughs> Not exactly the entire picture, but uh, that was the average dad back in the day. But modern fatherhood is actually, it's morphed into something bigger. It's morphed into, you know, a lot more care, a lot more nurturing, a lot more kind of loving fatherhood. And so I I term that the dadolution that we're currently in. So we're we're, we're currently experiencing a dadolution, but I understand that researchers refer to this as the concept of several fatherhoods. And I wondered if you might be able to explore that just a little bit.
1: Yeah, sure. So I think you're absolutely right. That I think going back a, a few years, there was sort of one main version of fatherhood. So one main version of what a dad would be. Some of my participants even described what they what they thought dads looked like, and what dads wore, and what they watched on the telly, and things like that. So, when they were referring to their own experience of being fathered, whether they did or didn't want to be like their own dads, they they had this very kind of visual description of of what a dad looked like and acted like, and yeah i think that is definitely evolving quite rapidly and i think we i think your phrase is really apt because we're in the middle of something we've still got a you know a very high percentage of dads who want to be different to their own fathers and not because they didn't have positive experiences although some didn't but they see themselves differently now they see themselves as different types of fathers whether that is you know being a you know a co-parent being a stay at home dad being the primary caregiver or you know doing as much as they possibly can whilst also I guess acting as that traditional breadwinner role as well
0: what do you think has driven that change? It is a kind of cultural evolutionary process, like a social, cultural, evolutionary change in our the way that we engage with our families. Where did that come from?
1: Yeah, no, it's a really good question. I think it's come from families themselves um it certainly doesn't <laughs> certainly not come from far reaching policies as well as you know in relation to things like paternity leave and kind of perinatal health services so i think maybe you know it can go back as far as women entering the workforce yeah, i guess having longer careers and so potentially that family dynamic where, you know, mum's aunt, you know, stood behind the kitchen sink and putting the food on the table uh, that, that might have been a traditional way of doing things as women have become far more involved in the workforce, stuff's had to give you know it, the, the, you can't do everything and I guess dads have started seeing that and stepping up so uh, what, what I would say that it feels to me and and certainly when I've talked to dads that this is something that families are sort of negotiating themselves they're doing it themselves they're wanting to do this a lot of dads are really desperate to be involved with their children and as we've talked about before or I'm sure your listeners have ta- heard about before policy really slow in relationships to responding to that and facilitating that?
0: Yeah, so it's partly situational and also through men realising the rewards of engaged fatherhood and that, you know, that kind of more connectedness with their children means that they have a more enriched life themselves. So.
1: Oh, absolutely. And I don't think you understand that until you do it, which is why it's kind of comes from experience. So once you do become involved with your children and understand the benefits to your children and to yourself and your intimate relationship. But I think that it feels like it comes from within those parents that are very motivated to do that. They try it on for size, they reap those benefits and want more. And then I guess that's where we start seeing some of the barriers to being able to do more, I suppose, really within our structures and our policies across the different sectors.
0: Which is a great segue into my next question, which was around your PhD. So I understand your PhD was about the transition of fatherhood, but it was in the context of say masculinity and identity theory and the workplace and also their experiences of, of fathers within our reproductive health services. So I wonder if you might just be able to explore those, take whichever one you want first, but maybe just talk about your PhD and the findings and and you know that some of the outcomes that you observed.
1: Yeah, sure. I mean, I I I so I interviewed first-time fathers you <laughs> Um, and I interviewed them once they'd become a father so they had a baby up to one year of age, one dad had a baby up to two years of age and so they were looking back at some of their experiences but also looking at the here and now as well and they talked about what their hopes had been for fatherhood, how they'd prepared for fatherhood and some of the changes that they had made like lifestyle changes wanting to be fitter so do more exercise in preparation for baby coming so lots of kind of active changes prior to their baby arriving. Uh, But they talked a lot about kind of their hopes for being a father, what the type of father they wanted to be. And that's kind of where their their role models or, you know, lack of role models kind of uh, were talked about as well. So whether they um, had had a really positive fathering experience or not so great fathering experience themselves. I have to say the majority of the dads I spoke to, You know, really appreciated their own dads, but also realized that it was a different time. And so they identified that they didn't really want to be that kind of. They saw their own fathers as a little bit distant, very traditional kind of ideas around, um, you know, what fathers used to be like. If we had, you know, if we described a dad in the 1970s, for example, because that was sort of the, I guess, the generation of dads that I was speaking to. So they saw themselves as wanting to be a bit different to that. Although quite often when they were talking about that, they didn't necessarily know what that would look like or how that would become reality because they didn't necessarily have any firm role models. Some dads had got um, friends or brothers who had um, become quite involved fathers and they were like, oh yeah, I want to do that. I want to be like that. So some of their motivation kind of came from um, their peers, sometimes in the media, although the media was (laughs) sometimes a bit of a minefield in relation to their portrayal of fathers.
0: Yeah, it doesn't seem like there's many, uh, like when it comes to the... Like you say, there's there's a bit of dearth information around around all of this. And it's very difficult for first-time dads to navigate the role of a father. And because, yeah, it's hard to define, but that's kind of a lot of what my work is about, trying to, at least in this generation, define that role so that the next generations can move on through and, and help those that are coming. Can we talk a little bit about masculinity, the masculinity side of
1: transition to fatherhood? <sighs> Yeah. I mean, I guess kind of the way that my participants talked about masculinity was in relation to their own fathers, but also in relation to other people in their lives' perceptions of things like gender roles. So they talked about it really broadly. So some dads talked about it in relation to carrying their baby or pushing their prams. And, you know, whether that was something that they really wanted to do, whether they felt a bit odd doing that, whether in their community that was a norm or whether they felt like they might be a bit of an outlier in doing that. So the kind of masculinity side in relation to what the dads talked about was very much influenced by the people that they had around them in their lives, whether that might have been in the workplace, that could have been grandparents' and grandparents' expectations of what that dad might do or be involved with. And, and a lot around kind of their own perceptions of gender roles, um, which for most of my participants were very enlightened um, ideas around gender roles. I, you know, I didn't have any participants who were like, oh, no, you know, I shall go to work and my wife will stay at home and look after my baby. There, was, there really wasn't any of that from the dads themselves. But I think that some of them felt that from external, you know, people outside their immediate kind of um, core family. Um, from a masculinity point of view, as I was saying before, some some dads really talked about, uh, you know, I guess going against a traditional norm. Some were very confident about that. Some felt very assertive in relation to that. Um, I think others were a bit more tentative because a lot of that masculinity was tied up in their work identity So it it was very complex and my participants came from a few different perspectives in relation to being a man, what a man should do, what should they look like, how should they act and that was kind of embedded within generational perspectives, within their communities. Did they see other men behaving as fathers as they wanted to be and was that okay? Kind of was there permission to do that as a man? And I think one of my participants was talking about um, carrying a baby in a sling and how some, some of the other men he'd been speaking to had almost described emasculation in carrying a baby in a sling and and he was really wondering about that because he was just kind of like well to be honest like for me carrying a baby around is like i'm the protector you know i'm i'm showing that i'm really caring for my baby and and this is you know this is me i'm a dad hey you know but s- similar to perspectives on pushing buggies and you know kind of you know who was saying that that was okay for them to do So again, some men were like, yeah, of course I'm going to push a boogie. It's my baby. Like why, why would I not push a boogie? Whereas others were kind of like, oh, I don't really see many men in my community pushing boogies or my mate was like, you're never going to see me pushing a boogie. And so, you know, as much as you want, uh, all these dads wanted to be involved and co-parenting their babies and, you know, really there for their babies, there were a lot of kind of external influences that were shaping what they thought that they would do. And how would they be seen outside with their babies? If I can just kind of go in a little bit of a segue in relation to that. There were a couple of guys who spoke about feeling quite self-conscious when they were on their own in the park with their baby to the point where they felt a little bit like watched or scrutinized or You know, a little bit like, you know, a lot of men have spoke about going to appointments on their own with their babies and kind of being almost congratulated uh, for managing to get to appointments with their babies and things like that.
0: Are you planning to attend the birth of your child? Well, the safest scenario is you're calm, relaxed and know how to provide physical, emotional and practical support. The worst case scenario is you have no idea and end up looking like a deer in the headlights. Be chill, brah. Don't be a deer in the headlights, mate. Birthing Dads has a suite of groundbreaking resources designed to give you a confidence boost ahead of the big day. And the best part? It's all on demand and 100% online. Go to birthingdads.com.au and use the coupon code POD, that's P-O-D, for a 10% discount. And learn how to support birth like a superstar. I've thought about this one as well, and I think the people that are doing the congratulating are from the previous generation. It is the women of the stoic dads who sat in the corner of Gruffy. They're they're the ones who are, and so I think that that's something that is part of this process as well. We're going to have little old ladies kind of making these comments for a little while, you know, oh, you're a good dad for for bringing them out or, you know, uh, and and that, yeah, that kind of opposing kind of truths there. Yeah, there's, there's a good meme where you see a, a mum is on her mobile phone, she's at the park, and there's women standing there judging her and saying, what a bad mum, because she's on her phone. And then dad's on his phone there, and they're saying, you know, the, the other part of the of the cartoon as dad's there he's on his phone as well but the comment is oh what a great dad taking them to the park you know and so they that does exist and yeah and i wonder you mentioned some some guy saying that he wouldn't be seen pushing a buggy but i wonder if he was actually a dad yet
1: yeah, I mean, it was it was a yeah, it was kind of a friend or an acquaintance of one of the dads that I interviewed. It wasn't one of the dads that I interviewed at all. The nature of of dads who want to participate in research like this are, tend to be the ones that are exploring kind of these new roles and trying them on for size and working out kind of you know where this sits in their relationship and kind of looking at that balance of of care provided by mums and dads and everything
0: so would you say that by necessity your research essentially is at the leading edge of the guys who are start you know kind of leading the evolution of fatherhood i guess because they're the ones who come forward and say all right well i'm happy to be interviewed about my experiences
1: yeah, and I think I think definitely. The, the, the very interesting thing, I, I mean, it's not surprising, but it's interesting that they articulated this was that when they participated in my study, so it was interviews, we sat down for anything up to a couple of hours, actually. The majority of the dads that I spoke to had never been asked about their experience, had never been actually asked what pregnancy was like for them what labor and birth was like for them what it's been like to be a new dad so for me it was an absolute privilege to be able to provide that space you know a lot of my participants kind of processed quite a bit while they were having their interview obviously you know if anybody was in distress i referred them on to to services but i think a lot of you know v- very much kind of let the dads i uh, had some questions but the dads mostly just, I started with, you know, can you tell me your experience of becoming a father for the first time? Well, you know, for most of those dads, they didn't stop talking for 20 to 30 minutes. Some of the dads were like, well, you know, we got pregnant, and had a baby and, you know, whereas, <laughs> so that took a little bit more exploring. But I think, you know, I would, I could safely say that a lot of these dads were really keen to tell their story, but really keen. You know, they processed quite a bit as we were talking, and and there were things that they hadn't really thought about that I was asking them, and they were like, "Oh, hmm, oh, yeah, okay, yeah, that's okay." You know, what have the people said? Yeah.
0: Well, that's that's the other half of this podcast, actually. Didn't, I'm not sure if you knew that, but uh, it's dads telling their birth stories. So we have the birth birth stories series, and then we have the expert series. And uh, yeah, because I think that's where we need to get to as a kind of culture, as as a society where dads are actually prepared to talk to the, the other guy who's just said, oh, well, we just found out we're pregnant and you can sit him down and actually share his experience and kind of. You know, that wisdom that that comes with having having experience. And those stories just aren't being told at the moment. So it's great that you're you've you know kind of opened that door for those for those guys as well. So wonderful. Maybe we can move into identity theory with the definition first. <laughs> identity theory. I've heard about identity, you know, identity shift for new parents, but um, yeah, identity theory.
1: Yeah, okay. So, I mean, I really, again, I I used it to kind of practically understand what was going on for men, particularly when they were having interactions with others. In their transition to fatherhood. So whether that was in interactions with healthcare providers, with, you know, their own parents or family members, with employers. So I used a a theorist called Irving Goffman, who talks a lot about performance. So basically, life is a stage and you're kind of performing every day. And in a nutshell, <laughs> because I'm not an identity theorist, but I used a bit of identity theory in my PhD. The thing that I found really interesting about that theory, which was about those interactions. So, for example, if a dad is being a very involved father, uh, maybe a primary caregiver, you know, or he's just out and about with his with his baby doing, you know, dad stuff like you just getting on with life, the people that he may come in contact with will either kind of almost endorse that role or will, well, I guess not endorse that role uh, for want of a better phrase. And so I guess like the more that a dad might have a questionable interaction with somebody, whether it might be, you know, every time they go for a scan, they're told to sit in the corner or, uh, you know, every time that there's an interaction with a healthcare professional around this pregnancy, they're not addressed or they're not spoken to or they're not asked how they're doing. And so kind of those interactions almost kind of snowball into, well, do I either change the way that I present myself. So kind of it's 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 called kind of performance disruption. And I'm probably like not doing Irving Goffman very <laughs> good justice at all. But the way that I've used it is to try and understand that those constant, I guess, poor or negative interactions that dad may have in this tradition to parenthood and how that impacts the way that they feel as fathers and the way that other people see them as fathers, which all feed into... Fatherhood identity. So I guess, you know, the more that people are kind of like, oh, congratulations, you've taken your baby out. Oh, aren't you clever bringing your baby for the immunizations? The more they're like, oh, I'm, you know, you clearly think I'm the secondary parent here. And I guess that kind of feeds into your perspective of who you are as a father so i've used it very kind of broadly in relation to that kind of performance as a father a little bit like in the workplace you know dad's going back to work after paternity leave they had so many different interactions with either their bosses or or their workmates or you know so anything from kind of formally asking for things like flexible working and it not being a remote possibility to going back to work in a very female-dominated environment where they were sort of cooed over, but you know that kind of then fed back into quite a traditional perspective on on dads in the workplace as well. So, so yeah, kind of I guess I guess the way that I used some of the identity theory was around how much those interactions either endorsed how they wanted to be as a dad. How that facilitated how they wanted to be a, as a dad, and whether those interactions actually, you know, inhibited what they wanted, and and that kind of I, I suppose really further fed into kind of them compromising or reconciling their hopes for fatherhood.
0: Did you find that any dads had you know changed their fathering style or their parenting style due to that, or was it what was the you know the kind of views of men around?
1: Well, you know what, when I asked about identity they really struggled to work out what I was going on about quite frankly because I don't suppose we sit there every day and go oh what is my identity how do I you know so I had to change that to you know how do you do you see yourself differently now that you're a father do other people see you differently now that you're a father I mean I've experienced this as a as a woman in academia as well you know when you mentioned that you've got a kid something changes. And I think that something changed for a lot of these guys in relation to their worker identity specifically. So I had dads who had been not messing about at work, but, you know, hadn't hadn't particularly maybe taken their job super seriously prior to becoming a father. And one specifically was like, well, you know, I can't afford to mess about anymore because I need to provide for my kid and I want her to have everything. And if I muck up at work, then that is going to, you know, stop me being able to do that. I had other guys who perhaps were, you know, would go above and beyond as far as hours, staying late, taking on extra work and things like that, who were just like, I am not doing that anymore because my home life is now way more precious You know, and these were quite assertive guys that were able to say this. They were like, you know, I'm not going to do those extra hours I might have done before, but I'm not going to do that now because my priorities have shifted. My identity as a father has become kind of more salient, it's kind of higher up on my list compared to perhaps my worker identity. And certainly in those first few weeks back at work, some of these dads just described doing just enough to keep their jobs. As, as time went on, they kind of recommitted, re-engaged, I don't know what the word is, kind of got back into the swing of things as far as work was concerned. But certainly in the first in those early days of going back to work after paternity leave, they were really, really trying to prioritise home life where they could.
0: But it's also, uh, it's hard to kind of be at your peak performance when you're suffering from the debilitating effects of sleeplessness.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the most recent paper that we've done, one of the things that has stayed with me, you know, and we're going back a few years now since these guys, guys talked to me, but one dad said he cried on the bus on his way to work on the first day back going to work. And I just have never forgotten, you know, that interview, that time with that guy. And, you know, I was like... Yes, I, you know, when I went back to work after having my daughter, it was pretty emotional dropping her off at daycare for the first time. It was pretty emotional, you know, but a week or two weeks after you've just had a baby and you're going to work and you're crying because you do not want to leave your family. You don't want to be separated from them. And this just feels like an absolute sort of injustice and a terrible thing to be having to do that you're crying on the bus is kind of heartbreaking.
0: It is heartbreaking. It's it's the it's the kind of penalty of involved fatherhood, I think, because you, you still have to undertake those those other roles in general. Like generalising, most fathers might be the the breadwinner, and you're undertaking those roles and and then having to leave them, and that that is a big thing of involved fatherhood that I don't think again is it's one of those things that we don't talk about much, and it's dad guilt. You know, I term it as dad guilt, and it's really hard to deal with.
1: I think you're absolutely right. And I think, you know, um, again, this is something that we've been quite aware of in relation to mums for quite a long time, you know, kind of this pull (laughs) in relation, especially, you know, like as a working mom, you know, this constant guilt about, you know, having to go to work and perhaps not being able to do school, drop off or school pick up. I don't think that we have considered that in relation to dads, or, you know, we haven't until very recently, or even heard from dads that that is something that they're feeling. But certainly a lot of my dads talked about missing out, going back to work and missing out on seeing their baby every day, missing out on milestones, kind of missing out on the fun. You know, they they felt this kind of detachment from the kind of maternity leave provision, you know, not discounting the kind of the challenges of being you know a, a mum and at home to a new a new baby but equally saying you know i'm i'm not getting to do that i'm going to be like one guy was like i'm going to be out of my kids life more than i'm in it when i go back to work you know that kind of internationally some countries do really really well in relation to paternity leave provision australia new zealand uk us do really badly the stress that these guys are feeling is it was really palpable you know describing crying on the bus going back describing being you know one guy had a really fantastic employer who put him in a corner (laughs) for the first few weeks back because he understood that he was absolutely exhausted you know he was trying to manage all of these expectations Uh, he had to come back to work or else he wouldn't have got paid. And obviously that kind of has consequences for the family. But that particular employer was really empathetic to this guy's situation and was like, "Okay, we're not going to expect too much of you. You know, show up, do what you can and we'll support you as much as we possibly can, which is just is awesome in lieu of some really useful paternity leave policy.
0: Yeah, I, I think one of the things you touched on there of you know the experiences of fathers being overlooked is a real kind of foundational finding of of what I all of the research that I've done, and if anyone uh, you know is you know starts to research in this area, you find that dads are quite overlooked and and invisible. I mean, that's the that's one of the uh, title of one of your papers present. But invisible. And that's a 2021 paper. And when I saw that and I read through that, I thought, wow, this is, you know, it's still not changing. Because when I first started this work, I read a a paper called Not Patient and Not Visitor by Professor Mary Steen. Now, that was a meta synthesis of 26 papers over the previous maybe 15 years. And that was released in 2011. So the findings of that were actually quite similar to the findings of yours. And that just shows you that was a decade later and that you were still finding those things. So so perhaps you could just share with us a little bit about that paper and about what you, those findings were present but invisible.
1: Yeah. So, so that paper, I mean, uh, I guess just a bit of context. I'm a nurse by background. I'm also a UK health visitor. And that is where all of my um, interest in fatherhood has stemmed from some visiting new families. And so a big part of what I wanted to explore with my PhD, and it kind of morphed into <laughs> this big beast in the end, but a big part of it was around experiences um, in new fathers, men's experience of of perinatal healthcare, so we're talking about antenatal care, labour and birth, and postnatal care that's delivered. And this is a UK-based study, so obviously there's a midwife, not always continuity of care, so you don't always get the same midwife th- through the whole process. And then you have health visitors, which is a naught to five universal service once baby's born. So yeah I mean I agree with you Stephen I started looking at this in 2008 you know I was reading Richard Fletcher's work way back then and Condon you know first time father study which was an Australian based study and then when we were at the research symposium last week or the week before I was sitting there going this is all amazing fantastic research but it's saying the same things 20-30 years later So what I kind of explored with some of my participants was kind of how they had experienced interactions with healthcare providers antenatally during labour and birth and postnatally. And again, predominantly, they were in the room, but they might as well have been invisible. So much of the time, their perspectives weren't even asked for, you know, they weren't even asked how they were. They sometimes weren't even acknowledged in interactions. So they were in a room, but the interactions were all between the healthcare provider and and their partner. Some absolutely awful experiences of of labour and birth and really poor communication. During so emergency procedures, no interaction, not even a calming, reassuring sentence to say, look, we need to sort out your partner. Don't worry, we're going to get us sorted. We'll be back in a second, which takes whatever you know less than ten seconds to say. But they they didn't even have those kinds of sentences said to them. So in some really really serious situations, where you know, post all of this, my participants described things like, you know, I thought they were going to die. I thought I was going to lose them both. It was the most terrifying experience of my life. They talked about going home very soon after their wives or partners have given birth, sometimes in really traumatic circumstances, and they went home. It was often the middle of the night. They were on their own, sat in the dark, trying to process all of this stuff that they'd seen. And there was no space for them to be able to process any of that or say that stuff out loud. And as I said before, a lot of the dads that I spoke to when I spoke to them, it was the first time that they'd even recounted that experience. Because as you know, you know, mum comes home, baby's at home, it's chaos. You know, there's a week or two of paternity leave if you're lucky, then you go back to work. There's no space for kind of sitting and going, What happened? You know, what what just happened? I mean, you know, even if everything has gone great and very straightforwardly, there, there's still no space to kind of go what's just happened to us as a family but equally when something's been quite traumatic and I think just one more thing about the trauma you know I mean someone wise once said to me and and you know I've heard this several times before trauma is how the person perceives that to be so if they feel it's traumatic then it was traumatic whereas we are quite aware of traumatic experiences and births from a mum's perspective but dads see a lot of stuff in that delivery room, they hear lots of conversations. If it's not going well, they hear kind of heightened situations and heightened conversations that they panic about and they worry about, and nobody is processing that with them.
0: Yeah, let's let's explore that then. Uh, I mean, yeah, I, I identify as having experienced birth trauma as well and a postnatal depression, so I've kind of been through this this kind of experience, but. Um, Firstly, I think with what you've just said, there is a fundamental hypocrisy in our society that really is confusing for men. And that is, on the one hand, we want our men to be all kind of, you know, heart connected and we want them to be able to share share their emotional landscape openly and maturely. But on the other hand, when it comes to the rite of passage of childbirth, men are in a situation where they can't. Share their experiences, and we are telling them, "No, no, this is when you have to be strong and stoic, and hold it all in and bottle it all up, mate." Even although it's sometimes it's really serious, and then on the other hand, we want you to be fluffy and and nice and cuddly over here. And so, I think that's really confusing for men. Just a just a, a point, uh, you know, more of a statement than a question. But uh, the other thing I wanted to kind of explore with you is those interactions that you said could take less than 10 seconds. Why aren't they happening?
1: It's a really good question. And I've talked to a lot of healthcare professionals. So I've done kind of some workshops where I've talked about my research and tried to get midwives, health visitors, social workers to start thinking a bit more about um, father inclusive practice. Most of the time when I'm doing, or when I have done those sessions, people, nurses, midwives, social workers sit there Listening and kind of go, Oh my god.
0: Well, oh, they don't realize that they don't they're not doing it, they're focusing on their job too much, right? I yeah. think so. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Because I've never come across an an audience that I've talked to in that kind of capacity who have said anything other than, Wow, we do a really bad job of <laughs> involving fathers, don't we? You know, so they've kind of endorse that that is happening. And I think you're absolutely right, you know, and this isn't about kind of being derogatory to any profession because, you know, I work within healthcare um, education and I know that internationally there's short staffing, there's a lot of pressure, it's very, very busy. I, I suppose my argument when I am talking to healthcare professionals is that it is very small things that you can do and say that can make a massive difference to to that whole family, but especially that dad, because a lot of the time that feeling of exclusion, it well, it's not just a feeling, it's actually the reality. You know, they're, they're not sort of paranoid about it. It's, it's, you know, they're actually being excluded from conversations. So, you know, I guess it's about helping professionals to just kind of understand a little bit more that there is another person in that room there is another person in that family in that evolving relationship the two that's gonna about to become three and small things can make a massive difference you know kind of that provision on postnatal wards and things like that offering dads a cup of tea I mean I'm from I'm from the UK you know cups of tea solve everything but you know sort of you know I've, I've talked to student midwives who have said I had to sneak that dad a cup of tea and a piece of toast. You know, they'd been here for 48 hours, you know, and you just kind of think, wow, we're a caring profession. We shouldn't have to sneak a cup of tea and a piece of toast.
0: I I think that these these experiences of dads going through these kind of changes in their lives, witnessing these kind of things and then being invisible, as you say, and I really want to find a way of researching this in some way in the future, but um I believe that there's larger social issues in our society that are directly connected to the treatment of men in the perinatal period because it's actually it's it's the most important day of his life as well, and he comes out the other side saying, "Oh, I was in a hospital, and I was completely traumatized, and and I had to say that the social worker was for my partner. There's no social worker that's designated for me or." Uh, for, for men, so we are really, you know, kind of setting men up for a poor experience, and down the track, that might lead to domestic family violence. It might lead to, you know, isolation, suicide, and substance abuse, in particular, marriage breakdown. I, uh,
1: well, oh, yeah, I was just going to say, kind of, the, you know, the thing that I'm really interested in 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 exploring is kind of in relation to relationship breakdown, because I, you know, I, I just think there's. You know, whilst ever we kind of ignore that, you know, 50% of the majority of couples and, you know, I don't wish to be kind of non-inclusive in that, but, you know, we're talking about dads here. I think, you know, way more antenatal kind of interventions are needed to prepare couples for the relationship changes, you know, as as you become parents for the first time, you know, I, I think that that is something that is missing significantly. And sometimes when it is done, it's done very briefly. Oh, you know, you might get a bit ratty with each other or something like that. But there aren't necessarily, you know, strategies or toolkits provided to be able to kind of cope with that because we all know what it's like in the middle of the night when a baby won't stop crying most stressful experience that I've ever had, <laughs> you know, and if you haven't got a a communicative and a functioning, you know, solid relationship, then that can quite quickly spiral into really poor mental health. We, we you know, we saw some research in relation to um, lack of sleep and postnatal depression, you know, so we can't underestimate kind of those physical experiences during that time as well. I, I, I mean, I think, you know, I've, I've done another piece of research Last year with perinatal mental health services. So, we're hoping to put in a partner offer within perinatal mental health services. And we did a consultation event with um, mums, dads, stakeholders, and perinatal practitioners. Anyway, to cut a long story short, just kind of dads said that they were told that this wasn't about them. And so, when they're told it's not about them, then it kind of invalidates their feelings. And there's some really great research that came out of the Born and Bred in Yorkshire cohort study in the UK that is around legitimacy of distress and feeling not great psychologically as a new father and not feeling that they are legitimate feelings to have because dads want the emphasis to be on mum and baby. They want their mom, you know, they want their partner and the baby to be well. They want them to be happy and thriving and growing. But it's to me, it feels really sad that they sort of push themselves away to focus the the attention on on the mum and baby, and so you know this kind of you know not endorsing the fact that dads can feel quite rubbish postnatally. Quite frankly, certainly you know as you said before, kind of can lead to all sorts of you know negative behaviours, and we know that dads manifest kind of postnatal depression very differently to. To mums, they might you might see different kinds of behaviours exhibited. So yeah, I this kind of being told that it's not about you just feels well extremely unhelpful is kind of an understatement.
0: It's demoralising, and it and it it starts your your journey as uh, you know you might have been intentionally wanting to be a really involved father, and it it, it makes it a little bit harder because you kind of you 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 kind of told that you don't you don't matter. And I think though. When we're talking about these kind of issues, I do want to like echo what you said about that it's not about the health professionals in particular. It's actually, we have to take a step upwards. It's actually about the system that we've been provided with. And that's why some of our work with the Prepare Foundation is advocating for men in this space so that we can start to open the door and kind of say, hey, guys, we actually need to have a charge code for fathers. And if they are in distress, there needs to be someone who is assigned to kind of say, to brief them and say, what's happening right now is a postpartum hemorrhage. This is what happens. I I don't know. Is that part of the future or is it
1: in the distant future? I I, I would love it to be. I mean, you know, so something really interesting about kind of men's space in postnatal care. So whether that is immediately post birth or, you know, when health visitors go around and they kind of excuse themselves from the room and that kind of thing. But in the postnatal space, when mums have had caesareans or a difficult birth or, you know, they have to stay in a little bit longer, kind of excluding dads from that space, I think is I I don't get it because I think you know a dads are desperate to stay with their partners they're desperate to stay with their babies they don't want to not be in that space but for a stretched health care service I just think well you know surely if the dad was there or the partner was there
0: he takes the, the, he's an extra pair of hands
1: it it does. And, and it's, it's something that I've thought about so much because I just think, you know, you're missing a trick. (laughs) Like, you know, these dads are there going, let me help. I don't want to go home. I want to be with my, my partner. But I think there is a very kind of long history of this being a woman's space. And again, that's kind of a cultural, uh, a generational perspective that has to be, those barriers have to be broken down. But I just think, you know, I often think, You know, don't, (laughs) you know, from a purely practical point of view, why on earth would you be excluding these dads and partners when they absolutely want to be involved? They want to support, you know, because if a mum's had a cesarean and they're on their own with their baby, they're going to be calling the midwives or the nurses quite frequently to help them uh, with breastfeeding, helping them move around and things like that.
0: Yeah, but there is, there is look, it is a complex one because some things that come to mind for me are that, uh, you know, the the, the small minority of dads, because it's a heightened situation, it's about their their partner and baby and maybe their partner and baby is sick and therefore they still see themselves as that protector and they kind of come in and and maybe some men just haven't got the kind of emotional awareness uh, to be able to communicate in a, a meaningful and helpful way. And it ends up, he seems he comes across as being aggressive. And you know, even if that's five percent, that's a bit of a risk for health p- providers. And- I think
1: I think so, but but I think that there, you know, I, I absolutely agree. And you know, there are going to be circumstances where that's not a safe thing to do, it's not a helpful thing to do, but maybe that is the way that we structure that we've created our health services to be, you know. So we're kind of having to think about how you adapt. A service that is, you know, very focused in one way and having to kind of put add-ons onto it, and then kind of go, oh yeah, but it might not be okay in that sort of circumstance. Whereas, you know, we need an evolution in relation to kind of how, I guess, perinatal healthcare is provided in relation to being way more inclusive. You know, yeah, not everybody has a, you know, not everybody has um, a partner or a father on the scene. Absolutely, but. A lot of people do. And maybe we've got to really think radically about how services are provided because you're, you're absolutely right. On one hand, we're saying you've got to be completely involved, you've got to do this, you've got to be completely hands on, you've got to be involved in every aspect of you know baby care etc cetera, etc cetera. but also you need to go to work and also it's not about you and also you know and before you know it you've got kind of well you know what so we're in we're in this kind of middle phase aren't we Stephen where we we're evolving but um, I think it's going to be a few years before we have that kind of cultural that cultural shift
0: yeah, that's right. It is going to take its time, and that and that's all right. And but you know, part of that transition is people beginning to talk about it like us in more detail, and tr- hopefully, you know, getting others kind of fired up as well. They get our listeners fired up and kind of say, "Okay, well, uh, yeah, enough's enough. We need we need more attention, uh, everyone." Maybe I could, uh, if I could just backtrack a little. We we kind of touched on perinatal mental health, and we know that uh, men in general. Half half of men don't even know that they can experience that. So that's another barrier that we have to try and break down. But what are the drivers for perinatal mental health issues in men, do you think?
1: So just one thing to add to that is that um, so not only do a lot of men not know that you can experience postnatal depression and other perinatal mental health problems as a new father, a lot of people in the community don't understand that as well quite a few professionals across various different disciplines have been surprised by some of the rates of things like postnatal depression so it's not just a kind of it's you know if professionals and people out there don't understand it then it's obvious that dads aren't gonna you know kind of be hugely aware of that although I think things are things are improving. I think you know though there's vulnerability in relation to adverse childhood experiences yourself so if you have had a traumatic childhood yourself I think that you know there is potential for when you become a parent for that to be traumatic not if the actual experience of you becoming a parent is traumatic but you know that that trauma that you may have experienced as a child or as a young person may come to the fore as you become a a parent for the first time and that goes for for you know for, for mums and dads. One of the things that my participants talked a lot about was social support and certainly in the study that we did last year the guys that we talked to talked a lot about peer support and um, they talked a lot about so both my participants and then the participants from last year talked about their relationship and their friendship changes so not having you know either they were the first guy in their friendship group to have a baby and the others kind of have just carried on with life and you're, you can't, or, you know, just naturally kind of that natural kind of movement away from, um, I guess the things that you might have done in, you know, in in your non-parenting years, like going to the pub every Friday night or playing football every weekend, or you know, those kinds of things, which you just kind of don't find the time to do, or there doesn't seem to be the time to do. So we know that social support is really protective of perinatal mental health. We know that dads' social support changes quite significantly. They sort of become way more reliant on their partner as a source of support. And obviously, if if mum is not doing so well from a mental health point of view, then that's kind of, you know, we know that there's an interaction between mum's mental health and dad's perinatal mental health. But I think, you know, kind of what they've talked about. So my participants from my PhD talked a lot about peer support. Talked a lot about being able to talk to dads who have gone through fatherhood quite recently. Just being able to have a chat. They often didn't indicate that they wanted, you know, formal healthcare support in relation to, in relation to this. I mean, obviously, you know, if they're if they're really poorly, then you know, they would need that kind of support. Um, But a lot of the more kind of low level and just getting their head around parenthood, creating new friendships and things like that was around social support. They talked a lot about kind of perhaps being able to do something that brought dads together. And there's quite a bit of evidence in relation to that. So in the UK, there was a Dads in Football project a couple of years ago that brought new fathers together to have a have a game of football and also talk about kind of, um, I think they used it as a a mode of getting some ideas around research questions and things like that. But that definitely provided some solidarity for new dads, but they weren't kind of going to talk to a group. (laughs) So the kind of support that dads have said they've wanted is almost kind of support by default. So you go and do something, either practical or some sport or... Some activity, and then because you're engaging with that, you get chatting to other people, and there's an element of solidarity, social support gained from those interactions as opposed to come to a dad's group and talk about your feelings, you know, which um, might suit some dads, absolutely.
0: Oh, the marketing wouldn't. You wouldn't say that that's what it was. You know, you'd just say "Come come and hang out and then they'd talk.
1: Yeah, one size doesn't fit all. So, and like, you know, football isn't everybody's cup of tea either, but there might be other ways of kind of bringing bringing new dads together to, you know, work on something or, you know, the really interesting thing about the piece of research we did last year was the guys, again, talked about the fact that we'd brought them in as a kind of a consultation, a bit of a focus group to think about what a service might look like within perinatal and what sorts of questions they might want to be asked. But again, they said, you know, it's actually been really good because we've spoken more than we might have done If this was, you know, asking us to talk about our feelings and our experiences. So because there was a purpose behind it, because it was serving as a function to design a service or feed into the design of a service, they talked all about that, but they also talked about their experiences and their feelings and, you know, kind of, and some of them were going back quite a few years and, and it was still very raw for them. So You know, I think we talked a little bit about this at the fatherhood symposium as well around dads wanting to talk or men wanting to talk. I I have to say that I've never come across anybody, any dads who in the right space didn't want to share something about their experiences. And I think it's about how we create those spaces for dads to do that, which might be very different to how traditional therapy, counselling, group work Looks And, you know, there's some fantastic places. I don't know too much about Australia, but certainly um, in the UK, there's a movement called Andy's Man Club, which have kind of formulated themselves as a space for men to just come and talk. And they have a lot of people turning up every week to go and do that
0: there's a lot of organisations here in australia that are also starting to break down those barriers as well because our because of our suicide rate and i think that you know i think our listeners would be aware of of many of those they're not necessarily dad focused but they're definitely getting amongst it starting to to talk and 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 start to process these kind of emotions and, and feelings and stuff, which is is really important. I think, you know, sometimes, like you say, you don't really have to talk about it, but just, just knowing that you could if you wanted to is enough. And maybe it gets you feeling, you know, I think one of the things that you've been in isolation, you know, just you and your partner and you, you kind of, that's not a helpful environment. And I think once you get out and return a little bit back to kind of doing some things that you've previously done, then that's where healing starts and and begins. And I think that's really important.
1: Yeah, definitely. I mean, the dads last year talked a lot about just having a space to kind of decompress. I mean, a lot of these dads were, not all of them, but some of them had um, partners who had quite severe perinatal mental health problems and so they were talking a lot about kind of that they just needed somewhere to be able to go to kind of decompress but they also talked about how they would do that when they were concerned about their partner's mental health as well and I think that's it I mean it's a whole different kind of realm and in a whole different area in relation to severe um, kind of perinatal mental health problems but what they talked about was a a whole family approach so that there was a safe space for mum and baby to go to whilst they went and perhaps did some sport or they did, you know, some other kind of activity. Because if they didn't have that safe space, then they just wouldn't go because they were too concerned about their partner and their baby, which is completely understandable. And I think also, you know, there is also this kind of time... I don't know. There's sometimes a bit of a conflict in relation to time when you're a new parent or you're going off to the gym. Well, what do I get to do? And there's a lot of negotiation in relation to doing something for yourself, which we know is hugely important. You know, so a couples being able to kind of sit down and go, Okay, well, you know, once a week I'm gonna go and play football for an hour and I'm gonna go and, you know, I'm gonna go out with my girlfriends for an hour or whatever and and that you have that negotiation so that you're not it's not that one-upmanship it's not that oh you got to go there but I didn't get to go there you know because this is a partnership this is what you know the men that I've spoken to want this to be a partnership want this to be team and so kind of facilitating how you have those conversations is probably kind of a really key thing to be looking at antenatally as well
0: well, Susie, I think we've we've just scratched the surface of all of the uh, solutions to these uh, you know big world problems that we have here. And I think we feel like we could talk for a few more hours. But uh, in the interest of time, I was just perhaps wanted to, you know you're been a researcher for over a decade in in the fatherhood space, and I wanted to ask you what would you say to the first time Dad is about to, you know he's currently supporting pregnancy and he's you know looking forward to the, the birth and beyond, what's your advice to that first-time father?
1: I think one of my participants, and I, I can't quite say it verbatim, but what he said was just because it's hard, it doesn't mean to say you're not doing it right. And I think that there's lots of different ways to be a dad. You may not necessarily have generational role models, but I think look to your peers, look to your mates, think about the dad that you want to be and have some really good conversations with your partner about expectations so that you're kind of on the same page as you're going through this. Children benefit massively from having healthy and involved dads from an emotional, a social, behavioral, developmental perspective. You're extremely important. And I guess as a healthcare professional, but also educator, You know, we've got a responsibility to lead some of these changes so that we make it a little bit easier for dads in this space.
0: Brilliant. That's some wonderful advice there. Thank you so much for joining us on the Birthing Dads podcast, Susie.
1: Thanks so much for having me.
0: I'd like to acknowledge the Darawal people as the traditional custodians of the land upon which this podcast is recorded. And I pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging.